everyone, this is Lila Proença, and this is The Honest by VetaHead. Every episode, I get to pick the brains of brilliant, inspiring, and honest guests about their lives, passions, and everything and anything we want to discuss. We use the veterinary world just as an excuse to talk to fascinating people. Today, I had with me the amazing Dr. Courtney Campbell. I became aware of Dr. Campbell through a common friend. He said I had to meet him because he was, and I quote, an amazing guy. I have to agree with that statement. Dr. Courtney is not only a highly accomplished professional, but also a kind heart. We talked about career bumps, not passing tests the first time, race in veterinary medicine, representation, and how our profession can impact our lives. As he said, your career trajectory can fundamentally change your personality. You can find Dr. Campbell on social media, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at DrCourtneyDVM. That is at DrCourtneyDVM. And with that, I leave you to enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Here we are. Welcome back to The Honest by VetaHead. I'm Lila Proença. I'm your host today. And today I have with me Dr. Courtney Campbell. Am I pronouncing your last name right? It's just Campbell? like the soup. It's just Campbell, like Campbell soup. Campbell. Yeah. Okay. I didn't grow up with that soup, though. No, so I know. Not, I know. You're like, I what soup are you I know. Yeah, about? exactly. I'm like, I don't know that reference, but I can't pronounce that. Got it. Got it. <laughs> um, so... Courtney, you are a boarded surgeon, a veterinary boarded surgeon, a specialist, and I'll put a pin on that because we'll go back to that, but you also a podcast host, you have the Courtney Campbell Show, you have anything it's possible, um, you are a public speaker, uh, a national TV commentator, a co-host of Pet Talk and at Geo, you are a former bodybuilder, you have a book, uh, Pet Owner's Guide to Infectious Disease. And I found out that you love rice and good food and <laughs> anything else I'm missing there. Oh, my goodness. It's, it just gets more and more personal as you go down the list. It makes me scared. I'm like, what's coming next? <laughs> what's coming next? Is she going to find out that I'm double-jointed? or And um, that you don't like olives. That I don't like. Oh, my goodness. How come you don't like olives? <laughs> oh, besides being the most disgusting food on the planet. And this is no, this is, and this is true. Um, they just shouldn't exist, and I think that all olives can be erased. Is that off. bad? I'll, I'll put it like this: If all olives got erased off the face of the planet, <laughs> how long would it take for you to notice? You'd never well, notice. You'd how about olive notice. oil? I mean, would you use like? Do you like olive oil, and not or not even that? Oh no, no, the oil's okay. So you can okay. have, you have the, olives. the olives after you make yeah. the oil. Get rid of them. Oh my god! I never heard of that before in my life. Someone not no, like me. I, I don't I know. In, in all seriousness, I'm not sure if I've been, um, if I was, you know, traumatized by my sister because I didn't like them, and then she made me say, "Hey, your olfactory senses are really uh, uh, correlated to your gustatory senses, right?" She didn't say it like that. She was just like, "If you smell what you taste and taste what you smell, just hold your nose and <laughs> eat this olive." So she made me hold my nose. And I ate the olive, and then after uh, that, I was done. I was like, is never she older? again. Is it older sister? Yeah, man. The older sisters can make you do anything, <laughs> especially if I'm you... I'm the older. Okay, the older all right. Sister. So what have you subjected your younger siblings to? Anything Honestly, cruel and unusual, I... like eating olives? 
Uh, no, I have just one sister. She's younger than me. But no, I never made anything. I, I was a saint. No, I'm kidding. I, we, growing up, I even told um, Ori, our common friend, that growing up, we could not even stand in the same room. Like, no joke. We fought all the time. Physically, with words. Like, we could not be together. Really? Like, how not how much being younger the same is room. your sister? Two years and a half. She's two and a half years yeah. younger. Not even the same room. Like, seriously, I think we drove my parents crazy. You never like had, crazy. like, literal, like, like physical interactions. No, we did. Really? Oh, yeah. oh chairs would fly and things wow. would happen. And she would, like, punch herself and cry and, like, tell my mom that it was me. And I would be, like, you know, time off and whatnot. But we only became really good, really, really good friends and really close after my parents' divorce. We were like 20-something. Then we became really good friends. What was it about the divorce that made you guys get close? I think I started looking at my sister Luan, is her name, as like an adult. And she was so insightful. I, I had no clue they were getting divorced. I had no clue. Like, they right. told me, and I was like, what? And she was like, what do you mean? How come you didn't notice and whatnot? And my parents, like, you know, divorce is hard. And, and I think I saw how she dealt with it and how mature she was. And I was, like, freaking out, right. screaming on the streets. Oh my <laughs> and God. my sister was, like, so mature. And so I think we helped each other out so much. And then I opened my practice in Brazil and she really helped me. Like, she was, like, from answering the phone, helping me restrain animals. Like, she did everything. Wow. Like, she was amazing. And I find that that's a pretty, it's somewhat common, right? In that if you're older, if there's a huge separation age gap, I find that the siblings are pretty close, you know, because essentially they act as a supervisory role or parental role. Let's say it's mm -hmm. five, six years apart. Yeah. You guys yeah. are pretty cool. But then as you get older in life, you guys just are in two separate stages, you know? Yeah. Uh, they are either married with children or at a certain point in their career, and you're just now graduating school. Mm -hmm. And so that there is that that disconnect there. Mm -hmm. However, in your situation, I find that's more common where you have, if you're close in age, you fight like crazy when you're younger, but then yeah. when you get older, you're super cool. Oh, so, like, like my sister, I mean, she is like, she is everything. Like, she's so awesome. And like the kids are crazy about her. And um, on my wheel, like if I die, she's the one that's going to take care of the kids. Like, and so she's really good with kids. So that's especially amazing. teenagers. Once yeah. you make it to the will stage, right? Once you make it to that, then it's, it's over. You know, <laughs> it's, it's good. Wow, man. That is really How about powerful. you? How about your sister? Did How's you guys my get well along? Is, how, who's on my you, will? You will, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I don't. I, you know, no, it sounds like I should get one of those soon. I, um, no, my sister and I were just all so close. I mean, my brother is two years older than my sister, then my sister, and then it's me. And so I think as siblings, you know, we, we do fit into those stereotypical roles of um, birth order, right? They talk mm -hmm. about the firstborn because through no fault of his own he has to be super intelligent because he has to figure out stuff mm -hmm. on his own he doesn't have the ability for trial and error parents are much more focused because it's their first one they're like how is this gonna go you know what yeah, i mean it's gonna work yeah. and um yesterday my brother you know he just defended his dissertation for his phd so oh he's, that's awesome he's super happy about that they say the middle child is so is really there's an emphasis on trying to distinguish yourself between the younger and the older mm -hmm. you want to be special and my sister is really unique she's super creative uh, she definitely makes sure she distinguishes herself between her two <laughs> brothers and then they say that the last one or uh, the third I should say because this 
this uh, paradigm doesn't really work if you have larger than a three three person family, mm-hmm. but three sibling family. But they say the last one is usually the tension breaker. They tend to joke around a lot. They like to be funny and be silly and stuff like that. And I, I. When I was younger, I was really silly, like almost too mm-hmm. silly. Like nothing mm-hmm. was ever serious. Everything was a huge joke. And mm-hmm. um, I think I kind of fit into that role as being the third child as like the the tension breaker. You know what I mean? If there was anything going on, I would just, for comic relief, just act super silly to make people laugh, you know? So wait, so you're in three siblings or? Yeah, it's just brother, sister, and then and then it's okay. me, you know? Nice. Yeah. I, no, it, yeah. And, and poor Bo and Chloe, um, my two kids, they are kind of like the first child. I was talking about that with a friend the other day. And they were like, oh, well, but you have two. I was like, well, but not really because they came to our lives at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's like I had twins because I still, both of them still get it hard as if they were the firstborn because I didn't know any better. Right. (laughs) So you know what I mean? Like Chloe doesn't get, she's younger, but she doesn't get to have a more relaxed parent because it's the first time I'm going through all of these with both of them. And yeah, it's going to be interesting. And they came into your your life how long ago? Two years and a half. Two and a half years ago. Yeah, it was November Oh, the decree was December 12th, uh, 2017. So. De- December 12th, 2017. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's really it was, beautiful. It must it have been a tremendous experience. I mean, from the <laughs> idea of having two children. That's a way to, to put it. <laughs> from the idea to having two children to having the decree on December 12th. How much time did you have to adjust to that? Was it like a month and then all of a sudden you got two kids or you had been thinking about this for years? No. So I always went back and forth about like having kids, not having kids. You know, with our careers, it's just really hard. Like imagining during residency and then right after residency, you need to find a job and you're starting a new job and a new career. I was starting a new department from from the ground. And I just I was like, how am I going to stop this to get pregnant and then have the baby? And then so... It was always like possibly a thought, not really. And then I was about 37, I think. Oh, no, 36, something like that. Oh, wait, I forget how old I am. It was 36. Oh, yeah, I'm 38. I'm 38, but I'm going to be 39 in April. So in April, April. I was about 36. And so 36, 37, I'm like, okay, I'm getting too old for the whole biological thing. And not really pumped about it either. <laughs> like, imagine, like, would That's you, fair. like, if I told if I told you right now, Courtney, how about you grow a baby and pop it out? Like, what do you think? Stop like six months, a year? <laughs> well, guys are that. supposed to think like that's the ultimate gift that women have given. Oh, been given come on. I'll give you that gift human. any day. But I can say, yeah, listen, that's just honest. I mean, you know, on, on one hand, you hear women say, oh, it's the most beautiful thing. You shouldn't be selfish and think about yourself anymore. But then on the other no, side, you, you hear totally a lot of women about talking about, no, Courtney, the reality is it's very rough on your body. It's very it rough is on your very life. Ru- you can die. You know that dogs yeah, can die. It's the same with humans. Absolutely. So what you're saying, I think, is just so authentic because I think a lot of women probably are nervous about it or have have reservations about it. And you you said, hey, I'm going to make that decision. And so when did you did you have like a moment where you said, all right, this is not I don't want to go that direction. It, it, it was actually, I was debating, 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 debating. And then I even contemplating like taking the pills that I think they help you ovulate, whatever. That might be too much info. But I was like, if I'm going to do this, because if I'm going to have kids, I want to have more than one. Right. And 
I don't want to do this twice. And I started looking at papers and I saw that if you took those um, stimulants, that it, the chance of having twins, it's like super high or higher, I should say. And so I was like, I'm going to take those pills because then I'm going to have two and that's it. Right. Uh, but then I decided not to. And then I was watching YouTube and YouTube suggested a video and it was like this woman holding a newborn and having a glass of wine. I'm like, I thought you couldn't drink. What is what's happening there? And so it, she had adopted that baby. And I was like, oh, wait, I can adopt. I don't need to get pregnant. I can just adopt. Just like and, that. Just off yeah. of the YouTube. Listen, I think people have... Well, I didn't to, make my decision there, but I like... Well, okay. Because I was going to say... People would disagree. People, people have gone say to like, YouTube <laughs> to put together their furniture for like looking at how this camera is supposed to work. A I lot know. of people have gone to YouTube to like, all right, well, how am I going to have a baby? But I guess you literally you can YouTube anything nowadays. I'm pretty sure you can YouTube how to have a baby. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Not that you should. But yeah, you know, so I was like, oh, yeah, that's truly a possibility. And I started thinking about it. And then I started research, 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 and then so on. And then I, and then I realized I didn't want to have like little children. Um, it's really hard to keep them alive. And so... I decided to, and then I saw that majority of kids on the system are older, and they are um, like groups of siblings. They are older, and they also black. Right. And I was like, uh, why am I gonna make a own? Like nobody deserves my my genes running out there. Like I need, I should save the world. And and so I was like, okay, it just makes sense. And so that's how we did it. We just like that's incredible. I don't think I put too much thought on it. Like. As, and I don't, I don't say that in a regretful way. It just, it just felt natural. It felt right. You know, like when you think course, about it, it just felt right. Yeah. And in our field, it's just who we are. And again, I don't yeah. want to put you in my category, but, you know, our jobs are to think constantly. Just our minds yeah. are running constantly. Like yeah. you've got to have the answer to everything. You've got to know this. You've mm. got to know that. How come you don't? And so because your minds are running constantly, when you're faced with a life decision like that, it's mm -hmm. easy to overthink it. It's easy to pour yeah. just as much, um, you know, I'm very rationale. intense, yeah. Are yeah. you like that too? Are you very intense while you have an idea and you dip down and you research, you do, and then you, like it happens? Yeah, the only thing, 100%, it's like, but because there's so the only thing that stops me is that there's so many ideas, right? There's so mm -hmm. many projects. And so you try to drill down on one thing and you say, this is what I'm going to do. And something else distracts you. I remember I took hours. And when I tell you hours, I mean, hundreds of hours on my computer trying to and, and this is going to sound crazy because I'm not a software engineer. I don't mm -hmm. know anything about coding. But I remember just creating a Word document on trying to find a software program that would be universal for all veterinary hospitals for their patient records. Because I was so discouraged by going to different hospitals, it, asking yeah. for records from different hospitals. The mm -hmm. facts didn't look good. that You could barely read it. And I said, mm -hmm. you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a universal hospital patient record. And I started talking to people and going, now keep in mind, in order to do something this drastic, you need mm -hmm. to have, I would say, it's a good idea for you to have a pretty good computer background. And so I just got really into that idea. Now, fortunately, I gave it up once I realized that, you know, there are people with a lot more backing, resources, money, and sway and influence than I have. And I focused on something that I was more talented at. But my point is, the only reason why I gave up that idea is because something else popped in my head, something else, some other better idea came to me. So, so. you know, they, they're building that in human medicine, right? They are trying to link everything, not only that, they are trying to build uh, artificial intelligence system that can actually analyze the data. 
Because, you know, like you go to a doctor. How many doctors have requested your record when you go to another doctor? Seriously. How many human doctors do you think that actually read through your record? I, I think they barely read through it, I would imagine. I know. So so I, I, I heard this podcast. is the Armchair Expert. I love that podcast, by the way. And they were interviewing this doctor that that's what he does. And they are linking, they're creating a system. It's going to be an app where the patient holds the record. And for everywhere you go and analyze your data since you were a baby, as soon as you have medical records and start analyzing and seeing patterns and recognizing patterns, be like, oh, you're going to develop diabetes or whatever it is because like your records, your results and everything. Because no human has the time to sit and analyze the whole record of a person and, and try to, you know, come up with these strategies and like, and all these things that might, might or may not happen to you. So. Well, I'd, I'd be very really interested cool. to hear what his spin on it is because Microsoft had an application like that. It was called Microsoft Health Vault. And mm. that's where you would either upload all your records or place all your records into an online portal. And of course, the major issues at the time, this was in 2008, 2009, was security. You know, we just, yeah. and privacy. Yeah. That was like the buzz term, you know, particularly. Which is still, right? Yeah. Right. Was a, particularly with this uh, this term metadata, where they were just yeah. collate, yep, collating exactly. metadata, and so people were like, "Well, I'm not going to put my health records online mm-hmm. because I don't know what the who's going to look at it and who yep. might judge me for. I might and apply for health insurance. I might yeah. apply for health insurance, and they'll look mm-hmm. at that. And so I yeah. think it's just less of a concern right now. Yeah. And even like he was talking about how he like on even on his phone he has a um, I think an ultrasound. Like wow. of course it's not powerful. Of course not. Like but. It's it's pretty. I don't know. We have ECG on phones and whatnot. It's super cool. Like a watch, right? Can do a two lead ECG. It's like just so crazy. <laughs> are you are you really into technology? Oh, I mean, I love this. I got oh, this as a geez. gift. I never wanted it, and then I got as a gift. This is this is your you, then that's this your, my iWatch. Your iWatch, and you yeah. answer text messages, phone calls, all of that on it. Yeah. I mean, phone calls, not so much, right? Because it's like a speaker, but text right. messages and everything else, especially like working, you know, you've like with a client or, or I, you, I can feel it vibrates when someone calls. And if I see if it's nothing about my kids or anything, I don't answer or sure. I can see a message or anything like that. Well, it's kind of so. interesting because those who are older than us, what we call Generation Xers and then, of course, the baby boomers, there mm-hmm. are it's it's kind of understood that they may have some challenges with technology. They say, mm-hmm. oh, that's just not how they grew up, you know? And then, of course, if you're a millennial or you're Generation Z, technology is just incorporated into how mm. you grew up. Like, this is yeah. so natural. But yeah. when you're in that neighborhood of 38, 40, 41, 39, mm-hmm. that is what they call a zenial. And these are people who grew up in an analog system, but then developed into a digital age, right? And so I didn't grow up. I, I mean, I was using net Escape Navigator and AOL and I didn't have AOL I, email, I, email, all that. Yeah, the AOL, chat, the AOL chat, AOL chat. Right. I we didn't, and then all of a sudden Napster hit the scene, and then LimeWire, and then FireWire, and all of this stuff, and we were just kind of like. Wow, like this internet age is just taking over. And so for us, those people in that group, 38, 39, 40, 41, the Zennials, I find that we, it's a hit or miss. There's somebody like you who's like super into technology, but then there's somebody like me who I would call myself a slow adopter. Like I see it, I like <laughs> it, 
but I wait to be the last man in America. You know, like I was the last guy in America to get a cell phone. I was the last guy in America to adopt text messaging. I mean, it was just kind of like, I saw it. I thought it was cool, but so I still haven't, my point is I don't have a watch yet, but I guess that's the next thing on the frontier. I I don't don't think you need one, Right. but it definitely facilitates life. But I think, did, did you have a typewriter that could erase? Did I have a what? typewriter that could Did actually I have a, erase a, a raised typewriter we had one in our closet right next to our vacuum cleaner and you could break it out and open it, it looked like a luggage you'd have to dust it off i know black piece of luggage but i you were saying that and i remember like when my father brought home the typewriter could erase i was like oh, oh my god is this magical well, you, or the microwave didn't you have like to slip a, a white piece of paper, like white out, and then hit a key, and then it would erase that word, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, but how? It was no there idea. before. It was like magical. And the microwave, I remember that, oh, like vividly. Microwave. And like everybody saying that you couldn't look directly at it because <laughs> you would develop. Like I remember all of listen, that. Listen, listen, there's still people, I'm sure, that believe that or people who just, I don't want I don't any stare at it. Wait, that- do you stare at it? What'd you say? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm saying I don't stare at it. <laughs> yeah, I try not to look at it either. I mean, this was in the days when my sister had uh, something called an easy bake oven, which basically was like a basic a microwave for but for children, and they cooked food. That does not sound safe. Yeah, man, it was a thing that cooked food with a light bulb in it. You had a light bulb, you pressed the okay. button, the light bulb would turn on. I think it was like I don't know a sixty or hundred watt light bulb, and um, it was uh, amazing. But I don't know. I was too busy falling from my bike outside. Oh, jeez. I was totally a tomboy. You were. You were. Oh, you were my God. A, I broke um, every bo- every bone in my body. Mountain biking or just anything? Mountain biking. Jeez. Yeah. And my bike was blue. This pink thing is not with me. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you were telling crazy. me about a book that is just changed your life, uh, you know. Yeah. And, the and, four hour work week. Right. Four hour work week. And I was just talking with, uh, a, you know, a, a dual a pair of authors who wrote a book called Wildhood, where they just Mm. look at wildlife through their period of adolescence. And they want to basically figure out, do whales, raccoons, uh, dolphins, uh, cheetahs, lions, do they all have a period of adolescence? And one characteristic about that that they found that was very similar to humans, and surprise, surprise, no spoiler here, but they found that all animals have an adolescence, even Mm -hmm. down to insects. But they found that there is that period of risk Uh, taking purposeful and deliberate risk taking. So you breaking all the bones in your body is so consistent with adolescence because we basically want to find out how far can your body go? What are the limits of it? And basically trying to figure out right and wrong. And they'd say that that's an essential part. In fact, they say that there's otters who will swim purposely in shark infested waters just so that when they see a shark, they can outswim them. And they do that on purpose because they're young and they're foolhardy. And it sounds like you were the oh, same wow. growing up. You broke every, like not every bone, but you, but you, yeah, you definitely have broken bones. Let's just say that the doctors would call me by my first name. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so Are often you I would. Yeah, and I was not, I was always like a good student and all of that. I just like I just was outdoor all the time. How about you? You said that you were you were raised by wolves. Is that yeah, it was right? man. It, it, <laughs> I was raised by wolves. You know, I try to I I say that tongue in cheek. I say that as a joke, but to a certain extent, my upbringing was. 
you know, it had a heavy wildlife influence. And I mean, natural. It wasn't like I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, inviting bear cubs to sleep in our garage. But <laughs> you would grow up and you would just see wild turkeys walking through your backyard or you'd see a black bear in your yard or deer eating, you know, with the, the cabbage that your mom just planted. And so when you'd go outside, there was no, at least in my family, there was no video games, right? There yeah. was no Nintendo yeah. or Sega. No. There was, was Atari, like, though. Atari was awesome. Yeah, Atari. Yeah, we had yeah. that again. Late adopters. We always got everything way after it was uh, cool. But my parents would just be like, you guys want entertainment? You want fun? Go outside. Go outside. Go outside. Yeah, the same and way. so we would flip rocks over and look for salamanders and walk through just wetlands and just literally create games, you know. And, and where, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Burlington, Connecticut. Burlington is um, not associated with the Coke factory because there is a big Coke factory in Connecticut. But Burlington is like a house Five, you know, three miles of woods, one house, mm-hmm. no more woods, house and then more woods. Now, Burlington has grown a lot. So there's a lot mm-hmm. more houses there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that was that was the upbringing. Just it, when it you, when it was full spring or summer, you could not see your neighbor's house. Then when the winter hit and autumn hit, all the leaves fall off the trees and you're like, oh, somebody lives oh, there. That neighbor. Oh, there's a brand. That's there's a brand new house there. So that um, it kept us isolated. It spawned creativity and uh, it, it provided the foundational experiences that I, you know, eventually led to veterinary medicine. So I'm from Brazil and I grew up there. And I could people tell. always think like Brazil, like you have wildlife everywhere. I never saw wildlife like like you. Never. Like, you never saw wildlife. Like in the No. Like, yes, I saw, I saw, but to see wildlife, you had to go where they are. Like, they're not around your house. Like, here around my house, I see, you know, well, I told you, my drive to work, I see dolphins, I see sea lions, I see all types of birds and, um, you know, raccoons and deer and whatnot. But in Brazil, I mean, of course, if you, if you live in the Amazon, but that's a very, very tiny percentage of the population. But I grew up in the capital and I grew up in a house still, like, Wildlife was not there. I mean, you had like some birds and okay. Whatnot, wildlife but. was there, but was there any other type of life besides human life? Yeah, I mean, there's like the the common wildlife, like the sparrows and whatnot. But like a deer would be like an event no, if I saw I, a deer on my. Backyard. When I say wildlife, I'm talking something that you were or life in general. I'm talking something that you were really close to, like, like unless dog. you had a, a dog, a cat, or yeah. if you had a garden, or if you had a goldfish, or yeah, when yeah. you were growing up, was there life? All of the above. All of the above. There was life that you were close to. Besides no, there human. was nature, like nature. nature. Like my house had a huge backyard, a lot of nature, and I was out all the time, but. In terms of wildlife, I find it crazy because when I talk to people here and they go like, oh, my God, you're from Brazil. You must have seen so much wildlife. I was like, not really. I see more here than there. Like you need to go to the Amazon. You need to like fly there. You know, it's not like you go outside and you see a deer in your backyard eating the cabbage. No. like Yeah, that was that was my life. And, um, you know, there is a character. There's an iconic character that sells. uh, He's a cartoon character who sells paper towels and he's called the brawny man and he wears Mm. a red flannel shirt and he chops wood and he sells paper towels and i tell people i had a sort of what kind of character is that yes this is the this is the guy that sells paper towels. hey he will be rich now in the coronavirus exactly every every would be so rich if he sold toilet paper so the, the the deal is you know everybody listening to probably goes i know exactly who he's talking about but that was kind of like my upbringing just flannel shirts chopping wood uh mowing lawns you know going through 
wetlands and stuff like that. And you say you didn't see a lot of wildlife, which is incredible considering that's what you're boarded in. You know, you're boarded <laughs> in zoological medicine. <laughs> I was going to say that. Isn't that crazy? We were talking about this, Daniels, and that's my specialty. But I actually went to vet school to be a horse vet. You did. I rode horses my whole life. I well, did jumping. Happened? I think, I don't know. I don't have a romantic story either to be like how I became a vet or how I chose that. I just... I don't know. I just, I had to do a histology project and I had to do a bird GI and I went to the zoo to talk to the vets to kind of get some info, whatever it was. And then for some reason, never left. But I don't, I don't have like, how did you choose to become a vet? Well, I mean, for me, it was definitely a fusion. You know, it was a fusion of really being fascinated with animals but then also loving science. And I think mm. that that's what's interesting when you have conversations with veterinary medicine, you know, just veterinarians, you ask them like, what drives you? You know what I mean? What what do you find to be most appealing about veterinary medicine? And it's different for each person. You know, some people, it's the science. They just really love the science of medicine and figuring things out and coming to a diagnosis. So for some people, it's animal advocacy. They just mm-hmm. really want to advocate yeah. on behalf of the yeah. animal. For some people, it's you know, just being close to animals, that human animal bond and just mm-hmm. being close to them. So for me, initially, it was definitely the science. And I think mm-hmm. that that's really important because if you have a, a, a and I don't call it an inappropriate affection, but a disproportional affection mm-hmm. towards the animal itself, like, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. look at this puppy. Look at this kitten. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. But you forget for a second that you're actually practicing medicine that you have to you could literally lose sight yeah. of what's happening. Yeah. And I think that as a child. You might, you know, you'll, I'm sure you get this, Lila, too, you know, which is you got to meet my daughter, you got to meet my son. He mm-hmm. loves animals. He wants to be a vet, you know? Mm-hmm. And anytime I'm talking to a young person, I just say, hey, listen, make sure that you really enjoy science. Make sure you really enjoy studying and student <laughs> loans. And no, I'm kidding. But make sure you enjoy. <gasps> well, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, make sure you enjoy all that stuff because the animal's always going to be cool. It's always, yeah. to me, it's the, when I'm having a tough day, if I just focus on the animal, then it will it's like an instant mood mm-hmm. enhancement. Um, if I focus on the human, a lot of times it's yeah. not an instant mood enhancement. Yeah. So the animal yeah. will always be there. The animal's always going to be cool. Dogs are always going to be fascinating. Cats and all of nature's wildlife. So then you have to decide, you know, if that's going to be the cool part, you know, what are going to be the parts that you're really going to have to struggle with? And sometimes it is the medicine. Sometimes you you have outcomes that are less than ideal and you have and they stick with you you know yeah. for a while like it is, PTSD. it is hard yeah and especially like when i don't know about you but like i can remember every single mistake i made i can remember every single time that was a horrible outcome due to a mistake i made i carry that with me to this day like i remember the exact first one where i was when it was what it was I mean, it's just hard. It's it's a lot, and like the reaction of the owner, and 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 those reactions were not even anger. It's just the sadness, like how, like you know, how impactful that can be. It's it's too much. It's too much power to hold, and like euthanasias and all the things. Like that's a topic for a whole podcast. But right. I have a very different view in euthanasia, and I get in trouble a lot about that because I don't take it lightly. I don't offer it. Um, I offer it like. Really, if there's no other alternative out there, right? And and like a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of owners don't understand that. But to me, it carries so much weight. It's not that it doesn't care for other people, but it's just like it's playing God. Like you know what 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 lives, what dies. Right. Well, it's a lot, and that's that. That is you. You said you feel like you have a different opinion about it. Why do you feel? Um, 
that opinion differs from what you hear from most people. Like you're saying, you know, listen, it's really, this is really serious stuff and I take it super serious. Uh, do you feel like talking to other vets and other people in the industry that it's a little bit more, um, not casual, but they're just, they don't take it to heart as much as you do? Yeah. Yes. And I think, and I, I don't want to speak for all Americans because I don't have, my experience was like as a veterinarian was in Georgia and here. Right. Um, so I don't know all veterinarians out there, but I do feel like I did feel that cultural impact coming from Brazil and how we practice and how majority of times we deal with euthanasia here. Here I feel like it's an option, right? You can do this and this and this or euthanasia. Right. And like, it was like, no, that's not an option. Right. Oh, but they don't have money. I'm like, that's not a reason to perform euthanasia. Right. Like, and, and that's why you said, I think I need to advocate for my patient. It's not the best interest of my patient. If like there's a fracture, I bet you hear that all the time. Like, right? It, it got, gets hit by a car, has a fracture, the bone is in a million pieces, going to take $6,000 to fix it. And you can give any guarantees. Of course, it's a surgery. Things can go wrong. And the person's like, I don't have that. And then you need to euthanize the patient that otherwise it's just a broken leg. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, and it's 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 serious business because it's something that I don't think a lot of pet parents, animal owners, animal lovers quite understand in terms of the how thin how thin the profit margins are. Because you think, well, that should be the last thing you should be thinking about, right? You should just be thinking about the health and wellness of the pet. There yeah. should be nothing else on your mind. It's patient first, whatever's mm -hmm. best for the patient, and that is true. But it also there are people whose families depend yeah. upon this business. There's people who yeah. have children in yeah. school, who they have yeah. to feed their children. Um, they have rent payments. And so although you would love to discount everything, do everything for free and um, help out every animal, because that's why you got into this profession is to help them out. There's also some really rough realities. Yeah. You know, those, yeah. those student loan payments, they're not going anywhere. Right. Those mm -hmm. electricity bills, they're not going anywhere. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's the main, you know, that's the main challenge. And yeah. I was just talking to one of the, a large, an owner of a large um, surgical center up in Northern Cali just owns many, many hospitals. And, you know, they were describing and talking about profit margins in the neighborhood of 8%, 6%, 10%. Mm -hmm. And so what you have to understand, I think for a lot of um, pet parents, animal lovers, animal advocates is that just simply taking 10% off of a bill, you're essentially doing that procedure at cost. You're not yeah. making any money. You're not losing any money. You're doing mm -hmm. it at cost. And so there are some people who'd be like, hey, welcome. I can get a bigger discount. You only took off this little bit. And it's only because um, those are the factors that drive us. And it can really weigh on veterinarians really heavily. Yeah. And it can really be tough on their... Uh, their emotional and mental well-being. Yeah, I actually just did a podcast with Francielli. She's a psychologist and I actually dug deep and like start looking at papers and all coming from the veterinary world and psychology world and like how heavy it is for veterinarians and like start looking at the numbers and the reasons. It was a whole podcast, but it's kind of depressing. It's like, wow. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. But that's it's it's really hard, and 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 also like I think when we make the decision to be veterinarians and the amount of years of studying that go that go into that is it's not easy. It's already very challenging. And uh, my experience when I came from Brazil, so in Brazil I part of the privileged people as I am here too. But when I came to to United States, 
I came, I was almost 30. Um, I instantly became minority, which was never a thing in my life. Right. Um, because I was then an immigrant. It's very clear. I open my mouth, you know, I'm not from here. And so, and even the way I look is not really typical American. Right. Um, and that was a shock to me. Whatever, and then I did Whatever face, a typical American is, right? It's hard it to is, say. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And that, that's the point I want to make, actually, yes. what is considered the norm, because I don't think norm is a, a term that we should even use. But then I became minority and I did face challenges. Like I did face owners that would stop me and they would say, no, I don't want to be seen by you. I want someone that speaks English. I want someone who's American. Um, at school, when I did my residency, some professors would not take me in a rotation because they weren't sure about my training because wow. my training was all in Brazil and things like that. And that makes me think like how, um, what challenges did you face? Because when I look at the numbers, you mentioned in, I was reading 25 things about you online. Uh-oh. I was stalking you. <laughs> and then I saw that you said that you are, there's only you and another person that are board certified in surgery that are African Americans. Is that right? Only two? Well, it's, de it's definitely not right. But at the time, I only knew of another one. I have since learned about maybe four or five more, uh, which again is not an overwhelming <laughs> and encouraging number. I, I had the pleasure of going to ACBS and I, I, I talked to a couple of boarded surgeons. One is in neurology, uh, a couple who have been doing surgery their entire career, but who are not boarded, uh, one out in Boston. But the, just the fact that I can say I know six yeah. Out of a that country, you know all of them. Right. That I that I, I'm learning about all of them or that, you know, if I ask somebody, they can go, Oh yeah, I know these this person, this person, that person, and we can yeah. either put them on two hands or one hand. For me, that's a challenge considering I mean, just raw numbers statistically, thirteen percent of, you know, the United States is African American, right? So just off of that that number alone, you start to say, All right, there should be something uh, mm -hmm. that that's more representative. But then yep. if you just look at, you know, how pet ownership is changing or uh, just how the, the, the demographics are changing in this nation. You, you hope that the people that are helping to take care of these pets, people in charge of health and wellness, are, are representative of what the country looks like. But, you know, it's challenging because you say, oh, man, I, I've heard experiences where somebody said, I want you, I want somebody that learns, that knows English. I don't know about your training. I don't know. I had know, owners who, emailing the hospital saying that I should not be a veterinarian because I don't know how to speak English. Wow. He in LA. That's crazy. It, they were not talking about my medicine. They were talking about my accent. That's, that's insane. It's so insane. I only imagine like for you, because I see that with my kids now mm. and it's just. Well, that's the challenge too, is, is that feeling of going from being part of your country and just being Brazilian to mm -hmm. now coming to another country and you said, this is crazy to me because I feel like an immigrant. And there's a lot of African Americans and just a lot of black people who feel like an immigrant in the country that they were mm -hmm. born in, right? Yeah, that's my exact point. And, and that's, I just, that's I'm, the challenge is that, and, you know, yeah. and, and, the, and the question becomes, you know, there are there's plenty of allies. There's plenty of amazing people out there who, quite frankly, they do not care at all. Let me be clear about that. They just do not care what color you are. As long as you can take really good care of their pet, as long as you're respectful to them, they don't care. But of course, there's a there's a percentage of Americans who will say, 
I, I just don't want you to see my pet. Or uh, I've had people say, as soon as I walk through the door, oh, wow, I've never met an African-American veterinarian before. I've never met a black vet. I didn't know that there were black vets. And although that you may be thinking that, the challenge with saying that initially, as soon as you walk in the room without knowing somebody, is that now the appointment, now that uh, veterinary yeah. patient-client relationship is now that's what this entire conversation is now going to be predicated upon is that you notice I am different than you. Now that may be a beautiful thing you want to celebrate. That may be something uplifting that you want to add. But I think it's really important to establish a relationship beforehand so that you know that that person's coming from a good place. Because if you don't know them, then you immediately feel like, okay, they're noticing a difference. Um, I'm wondering if that difference is something they look at negatively, you know, and that's not how you should want to have to practice, you know, but you, you see it all the time. Or I've had certain, I've certainly had, um, interactions with clients and they mean well, you know, so, but it's, so I can laugh about it, but you know, after the interaction or after the appointment, they'll just say, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm just so happy that you're here. You know, I just think it's so great, you know, that, that you're here and that you're doing what you do. I'm so, I'm sorry, man. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean? You know, well, you know, you're black, you know, and you're a veterinarian. I just, I just think that that's great. And I, I get it. Like that's something positive they want to add. But, you know, most of us are already living in a, in an area where we, we realize that we're different. We realize that mm-hmm. we're, you know, that, that, that we do stick out, so to speak. And so to sort of compliment us on something that we're literally just doing or just existing, um, and trying to pr- be the best veterinarians we can can be a little bit disarming to some people. Of course, I took it all in stride. I think she was trying to be really complimentary and positive and uplifting, but I know to some people that could be a little bit, disarming and 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 a little bit concerning that they just want to compliment them simply on the fact that they are uh, you know african american within the veterinary medicine profession mm-hmm. so I, I know a lot of people do not like the term the headlines that you see out there like the whitest profession in america in 2013 the atlantic wrote an, an article on veterinary medicine being the whitest profession in america and some oh, people is it? Took, i didn't know that yeah some people took umbrage to that they said i don't like when you refer it to the whitest profession in america because i you know i don't i have nothing to do with that and i'm doing everything i can to encourage diversity in veterinary medicine. And my answer to that is, why can't you have both? Why can't you have advocates and people who are working hard to help make veterinary medicine more pluralistic, more diverse, more inclusive, but then also, on the other hand, also recognize that the reason we're doing this is because it happens to be fairly homogenous. And when they wrote that article, and I don't think things probably have changed a whole lot, but veterinary medicine outpaced plumbers, farmers, electricians, uh, every other profession. It was number one, being 96% or 97% um, you know, Afri- uh, yeah. Caucasian. Why? And then, yeah. uh, then Asian Americans, I think, were the next largest minority and, and, and so forth and so on. So yeah, I, I found that African Americans never comprised more than 3%. Never comprised more than 3%. Never. And that's challenging, never. you know, because... Um, you know, you say, well, where, where did that start? How did that start? What, what can we do? And we know that there's some institutionalized just practices in place that led to this result that this is, this didn't happen by accident. I mean, and you look in same thing on the, the human medical side or just physicians. There's certain universities that wouldn't even allow black students 
at their universities mm-hmm. until very late in life, certain very prominent medical schools. So veterinary schools were just following suit. And I think that fortunately, there are all kinds of organizations, people, and mentalities that are working hard to change that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And what do you think about representation? Because I I, I hear opinions going both ways. Um, I certainly like, and I'm not comparing women with race. I'm, I don't want to naively compare, but like when we talk about feminism and how women get paid less than men and how, you know, we are not in a lot of spaces are predominantly man-dominated and how, you know, I was even reading the book about RBG to my kids and uh, Ginsburg and yesterday and they were shocked that women were not allowed to be lawyers before and how they couldn't go to school and all of that and how that is transforming and, you know, it's a movement and it's getting there and we voicing more and getting heard more. But, you know, we will take the top to change because the top is male-dominated, right? It's going to take who holds the power to want to make a change so the change starts happening. And representation is something that people say that it's not a problem and some people say it's essential, but literally like here in the house, everything they're playing, 50% of whatever they're playing has to be women. Like if Bo is playing with Legos and he makes the little characters, like 50% need to be women. And I make them, I make him paint all of them because they are come all in one color, which is yellow. So I make him paint all of them in different colors That's and do awesome. all the things. And um, like our Christmas decoration, it's all painted, all painted. Like our elf in the shelf, um, you know, it's, well, it's 90% eaten by the dog, but like whatever is left <laughs> from the elf in the shelf, like it's not white. You know, we, we try hard, but all of that came to me after them. Not that they, I wasn't. I, 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 it's awful to say, but because I didn't leave that problem, I'm not going to say problem. I didn't leave that situation. It was not on my radar as much as it is right now. And today I see that representation does matter because my kids say it. Like she, like Chloe will go to school and uh, to the store and say, oh, look, like on a diaper, like on a diaper package. She was like, oh, it looks like me. I'm like, oh, yeah, it does. Like, but I didn't even notice because every other one looked like me. You know what I mean? Like sure. I... And the dolls and, and everything, and Bo with Spider-Man, Jesus Christ, he's like crazy about Spider-Man. Good. Crazy, crazy. Well, he already jumped from the ceiling oh, because he thought he now could he fly. he is Spider-Man. That's a problem. And so when Miles Morales came, you know, and he was just crazy, he's like, oh, my God, I can be Spider-Man, like, because of that. And we just don't have representation of veterinary medicine. Like how, when you were a little kid, did anyone or did you think that you couldn't be a vet because you didn't see a vet that looked like you? I didn't necessarily think that I couldn't be a veterinarian. And I think that is something that my parents instilled in me at a very young age. There wasn't anything that I couldn't do because of my race. And I think that's, that's really important. But it could be intrinsic, right? So if you don't see that, even though somebody says to you explicitly, hey, listen, you can be anything you want. You can do whatever you want. If you don't see it as being possible, if you don't see any representation, you're like, who am I going to believe? You know, you or my lying eyes, right? My eyes are telling me that it's not possible, but you're telling me it is possible. Who am I going to believe? Of course, you're going to believe your own eyes. And that's why I think that that iconic picture uh, the picture that's so powerful, been circulated, I'm sure, probably millions and billions of times, is that young African-American kid touching the hair of Barack Obama. Because for that particular picture, 
you know, that young child, he must have been, I don't know, five or six years old, meeting the president of the United States. And he simply just says to him, can I just touch your hair? Because he realizes, mm-hmm. even at that yeah. young age, that this is a guy who holds arguably the most powerful position in the yeah. world. And he looks just like him. Yeah. And I think that that power of representation is really, really, um, I think it's strong. I think it's strong. And I think that it's something that's noted at a very early age. And I think that's why I love the example that you brought up where you can find something as seemingly superficial and trivial as a diaper package all the way up to the most powerful position in the world mm-hmm. as president of the United States. And you can see that representation matters every single step of the way. For me personally, um, I hope to be one of those transformative members. I hope to be, uh, and that's something I aspire to even now, is to be that person that young people look up to and say, okay, I see that's representation there. That's what I'd like to be. Because I mean, if you ask me how many, you know, board certified, you know, African-American surgeons that I work with, you know, in my my career, it's, you know, it's a big fat goose egg. I had one surgeon who was super influential on my career and he's such a good guy, you know, not boarded, but just a fantastic surgeon. But I think ultimately, you know, that's something that for it didn't derail me and it didn't derail me but it could and i can understand why it does for a lot of people but you're it, it it's i'm super privileged and super lucky and grateful because you have to have basically the stars align you've got to have a family of parents that care about you you've have to have that keep you safe that provide you an environment for so that you can study and learn you have to have good connections people that want you to succeed and all of those stars have to align in order to get to your you know, your current position, so. How did your parents do that? Like, how did they, uh, I don't know, I don't even know how my parents raised me. Like, I, I want to reproduce that, like, right. to be like, you know, because again, um, I, I think an example I already gave here on the podcast was like, my father was always very feminist, even though we didn't use that term before. Like, when I turned 18, in Brazil, you need to be 18 to drive. And so when I turned 18, they gave me a car. And my father went there and... Gave me the key and said, you can only drive if you can show me you can change the tire. So right. he made me change the tire because he was like, well, we didn't have cell phones back then. And so he was like, if you're driving, you have a flat tire in Brazil, it's super dangerous. You need to be able to change it. You can't be in the middle of the road. Right. And he made me do that and all. So I like those things I can't remember. I can't pick it up. But I really don't. Like, how do you raise a kid to be to really feel in their core that they can do anything, they can be anything that, you know, they need to speak up and they need to. It's really challenging because, you know, to my, and I was talking to my parents about this and I, I want to say off the bat, I don't think that this conversation that I had with my parents, I definitely don't think that it was meant to be comprehensive. I don't think that it's meant to be um at all definitive. But what I basically was lamenting and sort of mourning was the loss of one of my friends uh, to substance abuse in high school. And I mm-hmm. started to, you know, ask my parents, like, I don't understand, you know, fortunately, we're just super lucky that, you know, none of my siblings, you know, abused any substances or became addicted mm-hmm. to any substances. And I was curious to my parents, like, how did this happen? You know? And They basically said, in short, like, you know, strong families. Now, 
I am older now, you know, I realize that substance abuse is multifactorial, including both intrinsic causes, extrinsic causes, and it's a mm-hmm. super complex, you know, issue. But I think what they were trying to say in, in that way was that if you can, one factor that you can potentially help avoid that, it, who knows, but one factor that they believed could help you prevent that is that by instilling confidence in your children and making sure that throughout whatever stressors they have in life, that they can rely, they can turn back to the upbringing that they had, the confidence and the tools and the resources that you gave them to deal with emotional stressors in life. And if you have, if they are equipped with those tools, at least they believe, my parents believe, that you Mm -hmm. are less likely to turn to something else. Now, again, I don't know if that's true, Mm -hmm. but that's what they strongly believed. And so my parents growing up were just very affectionate people. And I don't mean affectionate as in, come here, give me a hug, give me a kiss on the cheek. Yeah, they did that. But they were very much like, hey, let me see what you did. Excellent job. Or you need to do better. And so if you did better, then they would say excellent job. And so you were always rewarded with, um, you're always rewarded with recognition if you came up to what they believe was your potential or exceeded your potential. But then they also critiqued you to make sure that when you got those rewards, it was real. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just, yeah, uh, not just for, yeah. right. It wasn't good just, job for everything. It yeah. was for, it was real talk. And, uh, yeah. if they gave you real talk, then I said, wow, I'm never in need of, a hug, you know, symbolically or, um, you know, figuratively speaking, figuratively speaking, mm-hmm. I'm never in need of a hug from society or in need of gratification from society or I need to feel validated because somebody likes me. I never mm-hmm. need to feel like that because I got plenty of those figurative hugs in life. You know, both physical hugs and the figurative hugs. And so because my parents had been so supportive of me and, and again, not just lip service, not just mm-hmm. everything's flowers and amazing, mm-hmm. but like genuine, authentic, uh, support. Um, I know that where, how I move in life is based on my inner confidence, not based upon how many likes I get on social media or who thinks I'm cool or who doesn't like me. Mm-hmm. None of that is based on that. And I think, you know, that's just how they did it. And I, I think every child's different, but that's a very interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Well, you're giving me anxiety right now because if I mess up, they will be insecure. <laughs> never, never, never. It's like, ah. You guys, listen, I think we all we all have a, a desire to be better than our parents. Even if we had what we describe as like the most amazing childhood, I think everybody strives as parents to be better than you know, than their parents were. And I honestly sounded, just want to be like they were. Right, I think exactly. the times were like different. You had an amazing childhood. So you're, if you're better than they are, it's going to be awesome. No, it's just because I, we, I, we grew up in different times, right? That uh, for sure I would change a lot of my upbringing, especially about feminism. I would change a lot, but that was, those were the times. Like I, how I don't, I can't expect them to have that knowledge and pass that knowledge on if that was not a thing at a time, if that makes sense. I think they were very progressive already to the time where they lived and they raised us, especially my mom. My mom is Lebanese, like her family's entire Lebanese is a very macho-driven society. Like women don't have much say. 
Right. And so for her to be the powerful woman and always worked, always worked. My mom always worked all day long, made more money than my father. I think that that idea that you are static in your opinion, I think that that's sort of, for some reason, coming to the forefront a lot where people mm-hmm. are criticizing you for beliefs you held 20 years ago or uh, this celebrity said that 14, 15 years ago or my parents thought something when I was a child. Like my parents have evolved, you know, yeah. you have yeah. Evolved. We have all yeah. have evolved, and I think that that's part of growing up. I mean, particularly my mom. She's from the West Indies. She, she you know, she definitely evolved in her position and opinion towards animals. Right. So mm-hmm. um, that you know, as her son, her youngest son is a veterinarian. You know, if you had asked her before before I I came along, I, who knows what she would have said. You know, but you know, after I showed such a strong interest in animals. I could see her position evolve. I could see her becoming just so much more loving. What to What does mommy do, or did she do? Mom, mom was uh, she was really heavy into into computer software programming initially. Then she, I love mom already. Yeah, I know, right? Then she worked oh, in wow. finance, and then she worked for tax preparation. So she was really big in uh, computers initially, and then moved into finance and taxes, which is not very common for women at the time at all. I just bought two books for Chloe, like the about the mathematician that helped with NASA and uh, things like that, and, and oh, it's is just that like, like hidden figures or what was that? no, that was a code. Well, type. yeah, and I I feel so embarrassed because I forgot her name right now, but yeah, she's African American and she was like the goddess of math, and she like double checked the computer back then, wow. uh, which was super awesome. And but yeah, it's inspired on that move, like the the book. In the movie, spiral the same person. So um, you said you you go out of your way to make sure you know how they play with Legos, Elf on a the lot. Shelf. I go crazy. The books they read, you know, all Everything. of that. How challenging is that to Very. always have that as front of mind in their interaction? I I will tell you this: like when I adopted them, I did not know. I was naive to a point. People said, "Oh, you're gonna raise them white," and that was like. What do you even mean by that comment? To me, it was like I was planning on raising them humans, but right. apparently there's a thing. And you know what? I was very nice. That is a thing. It is a thing, you know. And and I don't ever want them to forget where they are, including Brazilians. Like I don't want them to forget our culture, our beliefs, who we are as a people, the language we speak. I don't ever want them to lose that because that's such a strong component of a culture. But and I start reading and and watching a lot of videos and things that actually there are a lot of people that think white people should not adopt black people. And they're very passionate about that. And that make that brings me a lot of anxiety because I cannot picture my kids where they were before. I cannot right. picture leaving them behind because they don't look like me. Yeah. And I just I I just can't. And so I go out of my way. And there's no way ever on earth that I'll be able to teach them as well as if I was black because I never experienced that. And I don't know what that means. I'll give you an example. So I read a lot and I become paranoid. <laughs> and there's no doll in this house that's white. There's no, like, nothing that's blonde, nothing that has straight hair, nothing that, you know, even, like, now that we rescue another dog, the dog is brown. Like, you know, like, the whole thing. <laughs> the dogs is are beca- brown. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I think she's a she's not a dog, man. I don't know what she is. <laughs> I offered the kids fifteen dollars to to train the dog each, fifteen dollars a pop, wow. and they won't train her. I was like, oh. <laughs> now it's quarantine. The dog's peeing, pooping inside. Oh, like, oh no. my god, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. But anyway, um, 
I read a lot about it, and I read that book, um, uh, Rene Long, I think, like, Why Am I Tired of Speaking About Racism with White People? Mm. That was like an eye-opening, and it is a thing. And why was I saying all of that again? I lost myself. <laughs> well, you just wanted to make sure the power of representation. I was asking you if it's challenging yes. to have that in uh, yes. front of mind, you know? Yes, and so, like, Chloe came to me already. She was eight. Um, she was seven, just turned eight when we adopted her. And she already like hated her hair. She would straight look at me and say, I want to be white. Why can't I be like you? Mm. And my hair, I want to. And she would like pull her hair like so much force, like with so much force and pull, 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 pull. Mm, right. And it was like, and no, you know, you might, and she was not raised by a, a white person until that point. And I don't think it's just because it's because your surroundings It's because what you see is because what like you know what I mean like I came to her life she was eight so it's definitely not because of me nice. but yeah so I do go out of my way I read a lot I it's not easy to find like for instance she she's crazy about um mermaids whatever and so it's like a mermaid like it's like a mermaid and a unicorn vomit in my entire house. But And I wanted to buy her a black mermaid. And right. there is this Barbie mermaid that the tail lights up. Oh, so okay. she saw that on Target. And it was a white mermaid. I was like, no, we're not buying this mermaid. <laughs> and then she was like, why? Because I said, because this mermaid is not. And I tell them, this does not represent you. This mm. does not represent me. This does not represent who we are. Well, let's find. We couldn't find it. So long story short, I went on the website. I could find a black mermaid, but it had straight hair. No, I'm like, I okay. can't give this doll to her because she already wants to have straight hair. Sure. If I give that to her, she's going to think that mermaids must have straight hair. Right. Therefore, right. I can't be a mermaid. So I had to buy the Serena Williams doll, <laughs> pop the head, no. because that doll had curly hair. I popped the head, and I popped the head of the, the, the mermaid, and then I had to put that. So I had to buy two Barbie dolls for her to have. That is, that's where he got his resourcefulness from. That's where she gets her resourcefulness from, from their mom. From it's They like, know how uh, mom's always going to make it work. That is hilarious. He used two different dolls just so that it's they just not, have it's the, just not there. the it's power like, it, of representation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that that's fascinating that you go out of your way to do that. I think it's so important. I mean, I had... You know, I became obsessed with Spider-Man and Wolverine. I had G.I. Joe, who was white, and a whole bunch of white figurines growing up and things like that. But, you know, it makes me think about, when you bring up that story, it makes me think about something that I had read a while ago. And so I apologize if I don't get the facts completely correct. But I was mm -hmm. reading a book, Freakonomics, and basically you're trying to answer the question, how much do parents matter when it comes to education? How much does parents matter in terms of reading? to your child when they're growing up. And they did all of these statistics and looked at all of these variables and controlled for socioeconomic status, geography, age, all schools, all of that. And they found that there was one variable that seemed to trump all the rest of the variables. Oh, tell me good of, news, please. <laughs> in terms of success, academic success, scholastic success in children. And it wasn't how much you read to them. You know what it was? Mm. It was the number of books in the household. Simple as that. Oh, I'm no, golden. Yeah, you're golden. You live because <laughs> you live in a library. That's wonderful. No, but oh what God. I think they were trying to underscore, and again, like I said, it's been a while since I've read that book, so I need uh. to get my facts straight. But the 
the, what they're trying to underscore is that they didn't say what types of books, right? They didn't say, oh, no, you only need to have these types of scholarly books. You could have children's books. You could have Choose Your Own Adventure. You could have an encyclopedia. But having a variety of books or having a number of books was the key towards them understanding just how important it is. And so I, I think that when you have at home, like what you were just describing, even if you couldn't find that doll, let's say you couldn't and it turned out to be straight hair, at least she'd understand, you know, that, hey, hair comes in all different shapes and sizes. We come in all different shades and colors. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that diversity mm-hmm. of representation in the household is is really powerful as well. And so I, I am just so impressed by you and how I, I applaud you for going out of your way to make sure that they're represented. I think that's that's incredible. Um, but if you I don't ever, you know, and I, I have no room to speak as far as like parenting, of course. Right. Because I am not as experienced as you or experienced. Oh, I have two years of experience. That's not that, that doesn't even count. <laughs> but, but I'll say that I'll say that, you know, as a child, because I was one that I could say that uh, if you don't. If you don't end up finding that doll that's your choice, don't fret about it because, you know, whether it's white, you know, Brazilian, Puerto Rican or or brown, Mm -hmm. they are going to know that the world is a diverse place regardless because that's just how mom raised them. But but it's also like today I bought her. She's crazy, but she still believes in tooth fairies. um, (laughs) and. (laughs) <laughs> and she writes letters to the tooth fairy and the tooth fairy started responding and it became a thing like I'm deep down on this right now. I don't know how to get myself out of it. What's and your what's your what's your opinion about Santa Claus? So that's so funny you ask because they already came to us believing in it, right? I, I didn't have that I didn't have to make that mental choice because right. they already knew. Um I think today with my age and all of that, I would probably say that it's not real because I'm choosing to kind of raise them as honest as I can. Okay. Um, but it's funny because that was the fir- one of the first questions Bo asked me. Really? Uh, like it was like the second day we had him and he said, uh, he, he will call me Lila back then. He didn't even call me mine. He was like, <laughs> Lila. I was like, what? He was like, I have a question for you. I was like, okay. <laughs> and he was like, you know, in the United States, because they are from Brazil, in the United States, um, it's it's Santa Claus. Uh, no, how did he ask? Is Santa Claus alive in the United States? <laughs> no. Do you guys have Santa Claus in the United States? I'm like, oh, my God, what do I answer? Yes, no. Do I, like, does he believe in Santa Claus and I'm going to burst his bubble? Or, like, he does not believe and he's testing me. And I was like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> yeah, buddy, he does. And he was like, whew. I was like, what? Well, the one in Brazil is already dead. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> the one in Brazil is already dead. And then Steve is like, did you ask how he died? I was like, no, I don't want to know the answer to that. <laughs> I don't ask that. That is some but, complex thinking. Not only is Santa Claus real, but there's multiple in different and countries. And dead. And they dead. all have expiration dates like normal <laughs> people. That's, that is a really... But now he figured out that it's not real, but Chloe still believes. And she believes in the fairy, uh, the tooth fairy and to the point I'm afraid she's gonna pull teeth out of her mouth to talk to the freaking fairy and I bought her this book and came to the house today is a tooth fairy the tooth fairy CEO and she is black and she has an afro and she looked at the book I said look Chloe the book about the tooth fairy and she's like that's not the tooth fairy oh what I'm like he's written right here (laughs) tooth fairy and she's like nope that's not the tooth fairy I'm like okay 
like I didn't have time to have the conversation. Why is that right, not the exactly. tooth fairy? Who, but, is, who is, yeah. What's her preconceived notion of who the tooth fairy is? As, as I start pressing her, because she knows I'm like sensitive. If she says something about the color, the gender, I would say I, she knows I would be upset. So she said, well, because it doesn't have wings. I'm oh, like, okay, girl. Okay. Yeah. Or like Bo sometimes would say something about women. Or he says, oh, the guy that invented this. I was like, it couldn't be a woman? Why are you saying the guy invented this? And he was like, yeah, I'm mom. Yeah, the woman. <laughs> it's pretty funny because just the, the level of specificity, you know, the level of specificity with their creativity and what they picture. And if it doesn't match what they think, then, But like, know. how is the tooth fairy? When you think about the tooth fairy, how is your tooth fairy? Oh, I mean, I pictured her probably the size of a hummingbird. I don't even know if there was a actual um, race uh, associated with her. She was just kind of like a glowing light. Again, now let me be let me be honest. My impression, my impression, or my in, what I envision as the tooth fairy may not be what the majority you think. Uh-huh. You know, I may be in the minority opinion, but I felt when I thought of a fairy, I just thought of more of a, a an ethereal being. I didn't think that there was yeah, an like actual more, yeah. person, you know, coming down. So more if like somebody said to me, yeah, exactly. So if somebody said to me, hey, what race is the tooth fairy? I'd be like, wait, the tooth fairy has a race? I wouldn't even know. You know what I mean? But that's, no, he that's had really more than funny. the race is the gender. Yeah. I say, why is it a she? Why can't it be a he? And right. and and they go like, oh, I'm right. like, yeah. Why is it a she? <laughs> why would guys be fairies, yeah. so to speak? Yeah, yes, that's anyway. fascinating stuff, you know. And it, and now it, it goes deep. When you start looking at these things, it's just crazy. No, no, no doubt is it. And then and you think, well, what a what a whimsical idea. What a superficial topic. But this made national news. I mean, if you look at some of the major news outlets like Fox mm-hmm. News, there mm-hmm. was um, an anchor who had her own show by the name of Megyn Kelly. And she Mm. got in major trouble nationally for saying, hey guys, newsflash, Santa Claus is white, okay? Santa Claus is white. And people were just perplexed because they're like, first of all, it's a fictional character, so Mm -hmm. he can be whoever he wants Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. Second of all, why is that established fact? You know what I mean? So it was just, it, it was so interesting because you think, well, this is a ridiculous conversation. But when you look at, um, the fact that it hit national news reports, you realize this is an important topic for a lot of people. It and is. It, and it kind of yeah. hits them in the heart. Yeah, it is true. What did your father do growing up? You said mom was into computers. How about that? Dad, he was an eighth grade English teacher and he was that for 40 years. So when I see when I see an individual like that who can do something in their life eighth grade, for 40 years oh, no. is like to me, it's it's like I, I don't even I don't even I can't even put that into words because, you know, with your it's true. With, with your with our profession and our career trajectory. You know, you try to you try to go through this process as fast as possible. At least I wanted to do it as smoothly as possible. So that was, um, you know, high school, undergrad, immediately to vet school, after vet school, inter- rotating internship, and then I did uh, a, two surgical internships. So that's three oh, wow. internships, and then I went into a surgical oh, wow. residency. But there was like a two year break because I did some relief sh- services. But you uh-huh. know, you kind of want to go straight through because it's such a long journey. So. You know, you're just moving from job to job to job, internship to internship to residency. And so um, the notion that I would be at any job or doing for anything 40. for 40 years is like inconceivable to me. And so uh, he retired and went to another 
school where he serves as a liaison between kids who are bused from the inner city to kids who are bused into the suburbs and how they are integrated schools. And so he just wants to make sure that that process goes well. And he is a representative for that. But I mean, it's just incredible, his longevity, dedication, waking up at, you know, 530 every morning. I mean, it's just stuff I look at. You're right to do the same thing. Yeah. It takes a lot of determination. And eighth graders, no less. You know what I mean? And these are like, you know, I'm sure some of them were just trying my dad's nerves, but he was able to stay calm and cool and collected, you know? It's just I incredible. wish your dad was my neighbor right now that he could homeschool my kids for me. <laughs> I know. Jeez, oh that's got to be what an incredible it's experience. So, so, no, it's not. There's nothing incredible about it. It's so <laughs> hard. Just being like thrust so, into a profession which you have no formal training and you're just like, okay, here you go, you know. And they don't teach math the same way I learned. It's right. crazy. It's it's crazy. But anyway, it is, yeah. Did you pass boards first time, first did, attempt? Did not. Did not. No, Me I definitely neither. didn't. And how, how many times did it take you? I took it twice. I took it twice. Well, I took it, I'm sorry, three times. And and, and 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 the way that I did it, there's three, there were three parts. And I, pa- I passed a section each time I took it. And, um, you know, I don't tell this story to a lot of people, but it was life-changing experience for me because the first time that I took the exam, well, the first time I had d- declared my credentials, meaning, hey, you know, you're ready mm-hmm. to take the mm-hmm. exam, you're ready to do it. Uh, I was denied that for two or three years because I didn't take enough vacation hours. I didn't log enough vacation hours. It sounds like a small detail, but the credentialing committee was particularly um, detailed and focused and stringent in terms of their rules and regulations. So when they took a, a look at what I had submitted to them, the paperwork I had submitted to them, mm-hmm. they didn't see requisite number of vacation hours. So what I essentially had to do was after I had completed my residency, I had to go back in and just kind of work with the committee so that I could take vacation, log vacation hours, and then log back. It was a crazy scenario. Wait, so- it is making no sense. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard like following like what like so with with the residency what, what credentialing is the argument? committee with the residency credentialing committee every week is important every week either you're doing soft tissue surgery whether you're doing ortho or orthopedic surgery whether you're doing minimally invasive surgery whether you're doing research whether you're doing vacation whether every single week of your residency it needs to be accounted for and you need to register it as that and there when i was doing my program we were so busy and so slammed and the need was so high the idea that i could just quote unquote just go on vacation um to my residency credential to the residency coordinator was like No, 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 we need you. And so I just figured that out of the things that I needed, whether it was soft tissue surgery, orthopedic surgery, minimally invasive surgery, research, vacation, the least important was vacation. So I could just simply work through that. And then when I submitted all my paperwork, they said, we see everything that you have here. Everything's fine, but you just don't have enough off clinics time or IE vacation. I said, what does that mean? They said, well, you're not eligible to sit for the exam. And so I had to do basically all of these machinations behind the scenes and appeal and talk. And eventually, after two years, I was now able to take the exam. Have so you now, ever heard of someone else that went through this? I didn't. I haven't. Make, it makes no sense. It what does. Did they think you were lying? Like in terms like it, he didn't he was lying. He didn't put the vacation time. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Like my head goes there. I always think people are gonna think I'm lying, but like, you know, like because you didn't log vacation, actually, you were kind of cheating on that. That 
Does yeah, I, I didn't know. Saying? I didn't know exactly what it was, but I this also is crazy. It was crazy, but it also felt like I was dealing with a. It was dealing with a behemoth that was larger than than I could do on my own, right? So it was like you could mount a fight against you know Goliath, but you're not going to quote unquote become victorious from that. So my whole goal shifted towards what needs to happen in order for me to take the time. Now the challenge with that is in the inter- intervening time between all of that happening, I felt like I was offered the opportunity in my life. And that was because I had dreamed about, I had been in the house with my mom watching a program on on, on daytime talk show called The Doctors. Mm-hmm. And it was four doctors sitting on a panel. And it was a very popular show on CBS. And I remember watching that with my mom thinking, that's an awesome show. It would be cool if a veterinarian was on mm-hmm. that show because of pets are so important in people's lives. Five years later, I was invited to be on that show. So then I was oh, like, oh, wow. okay. And then I started thinking, I was like, how cool would the doctors be if instead of four doctors, MDs, it was four veterinarians or three veterinarians or two veterinarians. And then two years after that, after being on the doctors, they called me and said, hey, we're starting a new show on Nat Geo Wild called Pet Talk. It's going to be doctors. It's going to be based on the doctors. And we'd like you to host that show. So when I had that opportunity, it felt so surreal that 10 years ago, I had dreamed of this opportunity to host my own show on a major network Yeah, like The Doctors, and I just never imagined that I would get that call and be the host of a show that had never been created. You know, they said, this is the first uh-huh. talk show of its kind, all based on pets. I said, this is incredible. And that's what happened in the time between I was trying to get credentials. So now both of these things converge at the same time. I'm now eligible to take the exam and they say to me, hey, you signed the contract so you get a chance to host the show, which to me, I I mean, for me, it was like the experience of a lifetime. I wouldn't change anything. But now I am trying to host a show and study for the board exam at the same time. So that wasn't as you can see, you knew how that was going to result, right? You got three sections. I only passed one. So I said, well, Courtney, you know, you can't do this, man. You cannot be, you can't host a major news, pro- a major program, talk show, and try and study for the exam at the same time. It was like 10 o'clock at night and I was breaking out note cards. It was ridiculous. So then a second time I took it, I really studied. I mean, I put my heart and my soul into it. I wanted, I left no stone unturned. I was like on it, right? Mm-hmm. I took the test, didn't pass, and it crushed me. It absolutely oh, crushed me because this time there was no excuse. I wasn't hosting a show. The show had been placed on mm-hmm. hiatus. I had done, you know, I had taken the necessary time, the weeks off, the eight to ten weeks of just, you know, cloistering myself like a nun and studying my heart out, and I didn't pass. And I just. I, I, I was devastated. I didn't even know what. And I realized that, and I, I, this sounds crazy, during the exam, and I remember this thought going through my head, I remember coming to the end of one of the sections of the exam and going, that's it? Really? You guys couldn't come up with harder questions than that? <laughs> I got so overconfident. You definitely had a so different experience. <laughs> I got so cocky that I was like, I started erasing stuff because it wasn't in the perfect penmanship. And I started rewriting it and everything. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then I, I obviously ran out of time and I left some stuff blank and it caused me to fail. But the second time, it was out of pure overconfidence and stupidity that I didn't 
pass, but it was a devastating experience getting that email saying you didn't pass. So, but I, I passed one of the sections on the second time. So basically it took me three years to pass three sections and that oh, is the not the way, here. yeah, that is same not the here. way you want to do it. But, and I study a lot, even the first time I didn't have your excuse. Like I study a lot. I quit my residency six months to finish and I studied a lot and I didn't pass. And I was like, and my experience was different than yours. I was like, some sessions, like, I don't even know what animal you guys are talking about. Like, I don't even know what this, I, I knew it was like an aquatic animal because it was an aquatic session, but it's like, I don't even know what this is. Because right. for us, like my specialty is companion animals. And, but I still need to study about whales, about wildlife, about elephants, you name it. Like we need to know it all. And I was just like, I don't even know if you jump or swim or run. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> but it was hard. I don't know what the pass rate is for the surgery exam. But for the zoological exam, I heard it's like 12%. Yeah. That's yes, insane. That's it. I am the only South American to hold the title. That, to hold the title. That's how you yeah. look at it. The championship yeah. title. Yeah. And so yeah. you said it took you three times. Yeah, three years. It was wow. it was so demoralizing. It was so no. I didn't win cocky to do it. I won't say that, but I wasn't cocky or anything. But it's just like I, I just like I studied so hard. I don't know what else I could do different. Like I already gave my best, right. and I couldn't pass. I just don't know what to do to pass. Like so, what did I, I don't you? Know so what, what did you do? So uh, luckily, on the first time I pa I didn't pass. Um, they so you you take day one and day two back to back. So you take day one at nine o'clock. They hand you an envelope. If you pass, you go the next day and you take day two. If you didn't, then you go home. And so when I got my envelope and I didn't know anyone, I was alone there. I went to my room. I saw that I didn't pass. I had passed only one session, but you had to pass three. Well, we had to pass all five to move forward. Um, and so. A, a, like a acquaintance, which was not even my friend at the time, she texted me, said, hey, did you pass? I didn't. And the people next to my room had all passed. They were like screaming and celebrating. Wow. And I'm like, I was so depressed in my room. I was like, I didn't even know her like that well. But because of that situation, I was like, hey, I didn't pass. Can I go to your room? And she was like, yeah. And so I went to her room mm -hmm. and we started a friendship day. And then another girl came, which is Dr. Sadar and Dr. Motor, both of them. And so we started a study group together. And they both were from Davis. They did a residency at Davis. And that made me feel a little bit better. I was like, well, if the Davis girls didn't pass, right. I'm not that. But um, that's what made me pass is studying with them. They, uh, their ball game like, was stressed. Like it was so high like the way they studied the much how much they knew right it was yeah did you feel so better did you feel better about this when you the second time you took it i felt so the second time i passed day one but i failed day two because i didn't put any time studying for day two because like i why am i going to study for day two if i need to pass day one and right. i already failed day one once right so it was a mixed feeling so i was relieved that i passed day one um but no i was very nervous i didn't know if i had passed um and then i took day two and then I didn't pass and I thought about giving up so many times because yeah. it's just like doing this whole thing all over again and so then I passed day two the third year yeah I I don't I mean you know I always thought that I was a decent test taker you know I always thought that I was okay you know I didn't think I was stellar but I didn't think mm -hmm. I was bad but Me too. I mean even something like the state Florida board exam 
I was like, what is going on here? You know, and, and again, <laughs> I didn't study for that. Of course, I didn't pass it. But then I started again. I studied and I eventually passed it. But I, I, I passed it by pretty thin margin, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was me, the novelty here. I was like, I think you had to score, I don't know, 500. I was like 503. Yeah, like, I don't know. it was it's, it's just crazy to me. And I think that uh, I that that it's important to talk about it because I think a lot of veterinarians carry that with them. Mm -hmm. Like these are yeah. experiences that, uh, you know, they are what I call a, a coming of age, loss of innocence type of experiences mm -hmm. where you remember how I said when I was, you know, growing up, everything was funny. Everything was a silly. Mm -hmm. I barely took anything serious. And it was like, ah, ha, ha, laugh, laugh. After my experience with veterinary medicine, a lot of people are like, hey, Courtney, how come you're such a serious guy? You know, and I realized it partly because uh, that level of seriousness uh, was required uh, to get through life. And now and now, OK, the exams are done. But now you're faced with really tough medical cases and pet parents and animal owners mm -hmm. and animal lovers who are like, hey, I expect the absolute best. Mm -hmm. And so you need to attack every single medical situation mm -hmm. with a level of seriousness to get a great outcome. And so the there is that feeling where veterinary medicine and just your career trajectory can fundamentally change your personality for mm -hmm. who you were. And, and I'm wondering if a lot of this would have occurred just through natural maturity, you know, or is it just my experience with vet med that has changed? I, I, I feel it's the latter. I feel it is an experience with vet med. I don't think mm -hmm. it's uh, – although I like to believe I'm mature, but um, – you know, I don't know. We definitely are. But I don't see you as a serious person. Wow. Um, but yeah, I think so. And I think it's important for the students and people that are studying, uh, they're starting their careers and all to hear all of that. And that I ask all, everybody, because they see you now as a surgeon, they see me now as a specialist, but they don't know how hard it was. And, and I don't want them to think like, oh, I will never be able to do that because, you know, I failed the one time or I didn't pass novelly with the stellar, like, you know, scores like majority of us doesn't yeah you know? no, and, no and doubt it doesn't and you don't need to you don't need to if no, you, you don't need to be your, your novelty scores who cares about them like seriously who yeah does? No, well i was just coaching somebody who was taking the uh surgery board exam mm. and uh they were just like oh man i'm really stressed about it i don't know how things are going to go and i said well listen there's a couple of questions you know you're going to get Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They're going to ask you mm -hmm. how to radiographically describe mm -hmm. a fracture. Okay. You just know they're going to show a fracture. You're going to have to get into detail mm -hmm. and describe it. And they took the entire exam, three parts. And they said, well, there wasn't one fracture question on there. I said, surgery board exam. They didn't ask you one fracture question. They're like, no, but they did ask me a question on coyote attacks. So one paper that had talked about coyote attacks and lacerations and things like that, they'd asked him about, but not one fracture question. So I, the reason I, I bring know. that up is because you truly do need to know everything. You need to study mm -hmm. everything because it's kind of you need to be well prepared, but then you also need to have a sprinkle of luck in there. And if mm -hmm. you if you if you weren't able in your study session to study everything on part of systemic shunts. Mm -hmm. And they happen to not to ask, ask you it, a yeah. question about it. You're okay. Yeah. But if there's an entire section on portal systemic shunts and you didn't get to that, mm -hmm. that's the luck I'm talking about. Yeah, it is true. It is true. There was a question about the cytology of the blowhole of dolphins. To this date, I'm like, 
And I know, I still know, I still know the answer. But the, I will never use the information. I never touched a dolphin in my life. And I had to answer questions about them. It's well, just like crazy. That's crazy. what's interesting about your specialty in zoological medicine is that, you know, going forward, you meet, you know, many who are boarded in zoological medicine who work with chimpanzees and work mm -hmm. at zoos and things like that. And did is that division? Among zoological companion animals, is that a new division? And how did you yeah, select it's that new, division? Yeah. It's newer. Yeah, it is newer. It's, like, it's only a few, I think, less than 10 years. Less than 10 years. How did you mm -hmm. pick that one? Um, it's just like it was a natural thing. I, I initially wanted to work in a traditional. Well, initially I wanted to work in National Geographic, like, you know, like hug animals and wildlife. And so that's why I did my master's with like, wildlife. And then I realized to work with wildlife, you need to wake up at 4 a.m. every day to go to the wild. And I was like, okay, that's not ideal. And so I switched to zoo. I was like, okay, I'm going to work with zoos. So I did my PhD with birds in zoos. And then I realized, oh my God, there's so much bureaucracy and polit politics and all with zoos. Like, no, thank you. And then I gravitated to uh, private practice. Ah, uh, okay. And so okay. that's, yeah. But, um, and I think you, I can do so much more in private. It, it's different. You can do different things in different places. It just, um, and with Vet Ahead, I just got to a place where I thought, you know, you too, you know, Santa Barbara, I'm in LA, like the people that we see are really privileged. Like, do they really need me? Like, if it wasn't me, it was going to be someone else. They have the means, you know what I mean? Like, I, I got to a point, I was like, I don't really feel like I'm making a difference. I don't really feel like... Yes, I know I'm helping Mary and Bob and who, who, whatever, but like, what am I contributing like to the world? Like, what am I changing? And that's why I, I was like, okay, I can reach a lot more people and help way more animals if I teach about those things. Because we don't learn that at school. Like, right? Did you learn about Zoomed or exotics? No, no. And in fact, it's really hard. Yeah, it's super hard. And it's also. You know, we get a sprinkle of that in laboratory mm -hmm. animal medicine, but mm -hmm. you don't get very much of that at all. And it's like a club and like the people that bought it, we are like 200 in the world. Wow. And they don't incredible. want to spread information. Like, like, you know, like, guys, let's just like people, let's just share this. Let's, the more we share, the more animals we help. Mm. Don't make it so hard to become a specialist. Like, this is it's crazy. So long story short, that's why I came up with uh, Vetahead. It was in the need to really spread that. Now that I hold this title and and you know the letters which they're literally just letters and you don't look at those else. letters you don't look at those letters of coming through sweat hard work decades it and did, tears but i don't celebrate them the way i should and it's just and i just want to spread and like help general practitioners like be able to see these animals they're so passionate about it they just don't have the way like the way to learn about it and so that i had like to be a bridge between the passion veterinarians that want to help and the the owners that love and are bonded to the animals and want to care for them, but they don't find a veterinarian that can help them. And so it's like to close that bridge. But yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. That's really incredible. And I, I know a few I know a few um, that are boarded in, in zoological medicine, um, but you're the first that, you know, known on the companion side. Yeah. Yeah. So to wrap it up, um, tell me something that you're like super proud in your life. Oh, man. Not professional. Not professional. Not professional. Oh, what am I most proud about in my mm -hmm. life? Not professional. Not professional. Uh, I would say, what am I most proud about? This is a really hard question. because <laughs> It is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. is very that's, hard. Not, that's just not my nature. I don't really think I know, about that. Exactly. I don't really think about... Um, 
you know, what, what to be proud about. I just kind of move, you know, and that's just Mm -hmm. fundamentally, you know, who I am. But I think I'm most proud of, I'm most proud of my ability to, to multitask. I think, I think that's the, because in vet school, I was in four or five plays and then I was also a Purina representative and then I was vice president in class and, and yeah, did it impact me academically? Maybe, right? I could have been more focused mm-hmm. and studied and got better. But that diversity of experience did more for me than any 3.8, 3.9 GPA ever could. I wouldn't change mm-hmm. it in an instant. I love the fact that my life experiences have been so eye-opening and illuminating and that ability to to step outside my comfort zone is what I'm most proud about, you know? Um, are there, are there awards that I'm really proud about? Yeah. Like I, you know, was able to get best presenter at veterinary orthopedic society meeting. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I, I just won a, um, excellence in journalism and, and in, in the pet industry award at global pet expo. Um, I've, you know, you know, been the host of a show on Nat Geo Wild. Like these are all awesome achievements. But you know what they re- you know what they say to me is they say to me that you, that I've been training for a race that I didn't know I was going to run. All my mm-hmm. life experiences, all that experience in theater, all that experience in band, in sports, in all of that is culminated into what I'm doing now. So it's hard for me to pick one of those, mm-hmm. and I just have to pick, you know, life experiences. Sorry that answer's so long, but it's hard. It is you know? also. It is it's true. Re- it's it's like really the, the experience that shape you and make who you are. That's yeah. Awesome. And then if it, at any point, you can always say, ah, this is too hard. Yeah, I think I'll just do one thing. This is it. All I want to do is that. But um, can you do just one thing? I I don't know if I could. I don't I know can't. if I could. I can't. Yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't do. It. I I can't picture you. You're so ambitious. Even this amazing podcast that you have. I think um, it's so important to get a lot of this stuff off our chest. And you may not realize it, but. I'm sure a lot of your guests have described to you just how therapeutic it can be just to talk about some of their life experiences. So I think you are doing amazing work. Oh, I ho- thank you. I hope Does you it mean that you need to, to pay me for this session? <laughs> how much do you charge? <laughs> oh, Whatever it is, you're worth it. Whatever it is. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here, for um, spending your time with us. And uh, we'll see you guys on the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. The honest mistake. As the name says, this is the part of the episode where we talk about the honest mistakes we made. We correct ourselves. We talk about any misinterpretations, misconceptions, or anything else we might have not really gotten right the first time. In this podcast episode, uh, we talked about so many things. One of the things we talked about was a medication that stimulates ovulation. Oh my God, we went far on that. I don't even know, maybe that was too much information. But anyway, it was said, and at the time, I did not remember the name of the medication. It's Clomid, uh, which is clomenophene. That um, medication works by making the body think that your estrogen levels are lower than they are, and then it causes your pituitary gland to increase the secretion of a follicle-stimulating hormone, or also called FSH, and also another hormone called LH. 
And so the higher levels of the FSH, they stimulate the ovary and then the ovary produces more eggs, more follicles or even multiple follicles. And that will develop and then be released during ovulation. And so that and the LH, the LH will then stimulate the ovulation. So the FSH stimulates the ovary to produce the eggs and that LH stimulates the ovulation itself. And I mentioned that that was a, I mean, I was so <laughs> crazy when I thought about it because it was like, okay, if I'm going to get pregnant, it's going to happen just once. And I heard that taking this medication increases the chances of having a twin pregnancy. Well, I looked it up. Um, there is a slightly higher risk of having a multiple pregnancy when you take Clomid. The rate is not that high, actually. I just found out it's 7%. The rate is around 7% for twins and below 0.5% for triplets or higher order multiples. So that's for that. We also talked about, um, actually, I mentioned in a podcast called The Armchair Expert. I mentioned this podcast several times. I really, really love that podcast. Uh, it's with Dax Shepard and Monica Patman. We were talking about the use of um, digital medicine and um, how data can be compiled for a patient and their records. And I mentioned they interview a doctor on their podcast, and that doctor's name is Dr. Eric Topol. Um, he's an American cardiologist, a geneticist, and a digital medicine researcher. And the episode, if you want to check it out at Armchair Expert, it was on April 25th, 2019. So it was a very interesting. I do recommend um, they talked about artificial, uh, applying artificial intelligence to our healthcare system. It was very interesting. And then Corning mentioned metadata. And I was wondering, does anyone know what metadata is? So just in case there are people out there that do not know, metadata is a data that provides information about other data. So in other words, it's a data about data. <laughs> um, Dr. Campbell also mentioned Xenials. And he nailed it. I went to check and make sure that everything he said was accurate. And indeed it was. No surprise there. But Xenials are the microgeneration of people um, between Generation X and the Millennials. Um, and typically they were born late 70s to early 80s. So the Xenials are described as having an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. So pretty much what I lived um, I grew up without cell phones. I grew up with a typewriter. I grew up, uh, there was no microphone, no computer. There was definitely no internet. I remember vividly the day the internet started and it was uh, dialed internet. I remember the sound. Um, I had record players, which then we went to cassette uh, tapes, and then we went to CDs, then DVDs, then Blu-rays. I mean, it's just crazy thinking about all of that. Um, the it, it, Depending on where you look, the generations, the years uh, they were born changed a little bit, but basically the most common information out there is that the members of Generation X were born between 1965 and 1980, and millennials were born between 19 uh, 1981 and 1996. And then the Xenials, though, they were born sometime in between that. So 1977 to 1983. I was born in 1981. 
Um, we talked about typewriter. I remember I was in third grade, maybe fourth grade, um, writing an assignment on my typewriter. And I had the fancy typewriters because they could erase what you typed. It was magical. We talked about that during the episode. And I went to look it up. How was the typewriter able to actually delete or erase what was typed? Um, so most typewriters, they have a backspace backspace key on the keyboard, but the function of that um, is different that we are, is used for now. When the backspace key is pressed, the paper that gets shifted one character to the right, um, unlike the usual left sheet followed after we uh, we press the, the key press. Um, so what they did actually to remove the character from the page um, to correct the paper what actually happened was not that it was erased. It was um, when you press that key, uh, white correction material was applied over the letter. So it left a blank space, but it was not erased. It was just covered up, which is, I mean, I have to tell you, I still remember it, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> it was really, really cool. Then we start talking about race, um, some percentage of African-Americans. And Dr. Campbell uh, mentioned the percentage of African-American, uh, the population of African-Americans in the United States, and he was 100% right again. Um, in 2018 census, the African-American population in the U.S. was 13.4%. Then he mentioned an article on um, that was called The Whitest Jobs in America, I was unaware of the article. Um, I went to look it up, and the article was called The 33 Whitest Jobs in America. It was written by Derek Thompson, November 6, 2013. Um, that article uh, referred to um, all the occupations and the way they classified the occupations as the whitest. It was um, every occupation that more than 90% of the professionals were white, um, and that including the vets. As a matter of fact, um, on the table, veterinarians were on the top of the list as the whitest profession, and 96.5%. Below that came farmers, ranchers with 95.8%, mining machine operators, speech, language pathologists, um, and then the list goes on and on and on. But he was right. The veterinarians were hanged on the top, unfortunately. And that led us to talk about some books. Um, we were talking about my kids and some books that I've read about race and how, you know, I really became more and more aware to the topic. And I mentioned a book and I think I mentioned the name of the author incorrectly as well as the name of the book itself. So the book that I read... Um, they really opened my horizons. And after that book, I already read several others, but that's a must read. It's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. It was published in 2017, and the author's name is Rene Edo Lodge. Fantastic book. I actually listened to the audiobook, I think it's a great experience. Um, I also mentioned some books I read to my kids. I love reading to them. We read every night. I really enjoy it. And those books, I don't want to take credit for them. Um, I majority of the books I read for my kids, I find about them on two Instagram accounts. One is called Books of Melanin, 
and the other one is called Black Baby Books. Again, on Instagram, you can follow them, and it they have amazing books, Books of Melanin and Black Baby Books. There I found the majority of the books I mentioned. One of them was Tallulah, the Tooth Fairy CEO. Um, the Tooth Fairy CEO is... Uh, Afro, she has an afro. She's like, the vibe of the book is a little bit the 70s, like the colors and, and the choice of clothes. At least I, I found that way. Um, and it was written by Tamara Pizzoli. The other book I mentioned, and I was so embarrassed that I couldn't remember the name um, of the book or the name of the person the book was based on. So it's The Girl with a Mind for Math. And it's the story of Ray Montage, and it was written by Julia Finley Mosca. Another one that is spectacular as well, it's a computer called Catherine. It's the story of how Catherine Johnson helped put America on the moon. And that was written by Suzanne Slade. And I think that was the book that I actually mentioned while I was talking to Courtney. Another book that I also found on those Instagram accounts it was Pies from Nowhere. That's about how Georgia Gilmore sustained the Montgomery bus boycott. And that was written by D. Romito. All these books are for children, with the exception of why I'm not longer talking to white people about race. The other ones are all for children. And they are very language appropriate while still talking about the facts and talking about segregation and everything that happened and bringing the facts. So I found them very enlightening, very useful to explain or at least try to explain to the best of my capabilities to my kids what all of that is about. The last book I mentioned and is um, in a format kind of like a comic book, it's Becoming RBG is Ruth Bader's Ginsburg journey to justice, um, and it was written by Debbie Levi, and so it's Becoming RBG. My kids loved it. It talks about, in details about her life, how life has really sad passages, and at some point it gets really deep, and I thought my kids were not enjoying, but they kept asking me to keep reading and reading and reading every night, and they didn't want me to stop, and it was amazing. And the book talks about all the difficulties of being a woman and how she faced it, how she fought for it. Um, and really the message we are trying to pass to the kids with all these books is that, yes, that exists. Yes, that still has and will have an impact in their lives and how they can stand up for themselves and bringing examples of real people that actually did that, the real real heroes. And last, uh, we were talking about tests and how it took us three times to pass the boards. And we were referring to our specialty boards. That's after you do a vet school, after you do your internship, after you do a residency. But we also talk about the novelty. And then I figure maybe not everybody know what the novelty is. Um, so the novelty is a test that all veterinarians need to take in the United States. Um, is the North America Veterinary Licensing Examination, or NAVLI. And it's a requirement for, um, so you have a license to practice veterinary medicine um, in all jurisdictions in the United States and Canada. And the NAVLI consists of 360 um, multiple choice questions. It's like seven hours of tests is something like humongous like that six or seven hours anyway that was all i had today for the honest 
Oh, this episode was so inspiring. Dr. Campbell is really, truly amazing. And I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. And I will see you in the next podcast. Bye. Bye.